the Bottom Line Off podcast. I am your host, Richard Huffman, expert in all things Bader Meinhof. This is the only podcast that is devoted to, yet unaffiliated with, the Bader Meinhof gang. We talk about left-wing German terrorism of the 1970s, the Red Army faction, and related ephemera. I try to talk to experts in the area, maybe give you a little bit of background information about the group, and also talk to people who are just interested in in the era. And that brings us to today's podcast. This is a conversation with a Tulsa, Oklahoma musician named Chris Cooley, um, whose band The Portrayal has... uh, has a album which features a song called Stammheim, which is inspired by the Red Army faction. And Chris has a fascination with the group that rivals my own, which is saying a lot. And uh, this is kind of a free-flowing conversation. And it's sort of like two guys in a bar that are really interested in a subject um, talking about it. So picture yourself in a college bar somewhere like in Austin, Texas, or here in Seattle, and we're just sitting around shooting the baloney talking about a really really interesting subject and i think you'll be impressed at the breadth and depth of the knowledge that chris has and how it's informed his work okay so today we're speaking with uh, tulsa based musician and poet christopher cooley of the band the portrayal whose cd reprisals features a bader meinhof air inspired tune called uh stamheim um there's kind of a tiny subgenre of music inspired by those tumultuous times, such as Talking Heads, Life During Wartime, Lucas Haynes' sublime concept album, Bader Meinhof, and now we have the portrayals, Stamheim. So before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about how the portrayal came together and how, how what your role is with the group? Yeah, um, the portrayal originally came together probably about three years ago with um, uh, a met a tattoo artist uh, friend and, and became a friend and found out he played the drums. And uh, I've been playing professional music on and off for probably 20 years or so. So um, we put together a band and um, kind of had an original concept that was totally different than um, what we are currently and um, played for about nine months and, and um, it just didn't really take off. And, um, you know, I took a break for a while, and then we came back around uh, to to the idea again of doing the portrayal. And uh, the, the uh, other guitar player, uh, Rob, and I um, kind of got uh, a, another mutual friend of ours, Jay Blakey, in the band, and um, who's, who's a fabulous bass player. And we thought, you know, we might have a chance at this. So we um, put the band together, and uh, you know, um, found a drummer, and. Um, kind of started putting together an original concept of uh, what sort of the music would like. And um, everybody in the band sort of has, you know, uh, sort of their own mark on it. And uh, my particular role in the band is, um, uh, or at least my interest in the band, is primarily sort of vision and lyrics. Um, I do write a lot of the music um at the base point, but then the band takes over and, um, you know, finishes it off. So in, in, in a large way, everybody gets a piece of the action, you know? Um, and one of my original visions was sort of, uh, at least for my end of, of the band was I sort of wanted to, um, do something that was, um, based on a lot of the, uh, the literature I read. Um, uh, 
and and I guess I mean, somewhat of the movies I see and somewhat of what I see in society and what I'm inspired by. And it just so happened that around the time we got the portrayal back together and started doing it, I would say fairly seriously, was about the time that I was sort of back into reading um, literature that had to do with um, uh, things like uh, Badermann Haas and uh, the Irish Republican Army and um, Guy Debord and some of the stuff that was going on in France, um, Situations International and um, uh, sort of the surrealism movements and um, just just a lot of, you know, all the degenerates, you know, yeah. <laughs> of, of, of of society in the eyes of the general public. But, you know, I've always fa- been fascinated by that kind of stuff and uh, uh, and reading it. And um, so that, that's sort of, you know, how the band came so what, do, what do your uh, bandmates think of that? I, I know on a personal level, for me, most of my friends, um, well, they've humored me with all my fascination with Bader Meinhof stuff. But I think for the vast majority of them, the first 15 minutes of me talking about Bader Meinhof, that was at the point they were done hearing about it for the rest of their life. So every time I bring it up again... It um, it's pretty clear they're being very nice and humoring me, and and I'm wondering, is it something that you're an interest that your band shares, or is it a common cause, or is it uh, that's weird, Chris, with his weird ideas again, kind of thing? Oh well, I mean, yeah, there's always going to be, you know, the the weird Chris effect, or the, <laughs> um, but no, the band's very supportive, and uh, I mean, in their own right, I think. Um, we're all sort of um, we're all sort of into the same thing, which helps. You know, we're all we're all great friends, and um, uh, they, you know, it, it's not. I don't want to say they let me because um, it, the relationship isn't really like that at all. Um, they're, they're just really cool about you know, um, sort of lyrically letting me um, do what I think I need to do, you know, and um, not um, really. Uh, questioning necessarily the vision but um since we since we are friends we're all sort of kind of interested in the various stuff um they don't really you know they don't really say i, I can't really say they say a lot, a lot of times they say it's cool um a lot of times they have input um a lot of times i you know there's indifference um uh but i think for the most part everybody's on the same page but we're on the same page um you know sort of not in a speaking with that makes sense you know what i mean yeah. um it's sort of a gut thing um Jay, our bass player, kind of has he kind of has his um, area of expertise. Rob has his area of expertise. Our drummer Jason has his, and 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 sort of I have mine, and we all kind of respect that. Um, and it doesn't mean that we don't gradually bleed over into the lines of each other's area of expertise, but it just sort of works. And um, they don't um, they don't take offense. I don't think to, you know it's 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 rare to be in that position as an artist and working with other artists to um, sort of have carte blanche, if you will, to um, write about what you want, you know. Sure. And um, you know, I know Rob's Rob's very fascinated by uh, the '60s um, uh, and early '70s. I you know I think I think we all are. Uh, it was just such a tumultuous time. It, it was such a it, it was such a, a great time for history and and possibly uh, I was born in 1972, which is I think roughly around the time Bader Meinhof was was pretty much being rounded up, uh, yep. the, the core group was, um, which is serendipitous in a way. And um, I think I think that period of like roughly you know probably 66, 67 through the uh, through probably 72, 73 was around the world. I mean, you're talking about all kinds of um, revolutionary activity in in both good and bad ways. I mean, there was um, 
there were people marching in, uh, you know, in the streets in America. They were marching in the streets of Belfast. They were marching in the streets of Germany. They were marching in the streets of Japan. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a strange time in history, I think, where, um, possibly revolution and overthrow almost sort of kind of worked, you know, um, or at least they made a, they made a real good stab at it. It was definitely uh, the, the time when, um, being young and progressive or radical was the most exciting, limitless-seeming time possible. It seemed like the future was totally, totally what they could make of it. Um, with, you know, 40, 30 years on, you can see how it didn't work out that way or the challenges to it. But I can only imagine, had I been living at that time, if I had a time machine, how exciting it would have been for me at that time. And I can imagine for you and others in a similar situation. Well, it, it certainly makes you question what you would have done, you know. Um, what do you think you would have done? Where do you think you would have fallen on that spectrum? Let's say you were like a, a 60s German, like like you're 20 years old, it's 1971, you're living in Germany. Do you find yourself like maybe being attracted to being a radical like somebody in the bottom INF group or maybe being one of the more mainstream, I'm not going that route even though I support the politics kind of thing? Well, you know, that's a, real, that, that's a fantastic question because um, I think, you know, guys like, guys like you and I who are interested in this kind of stuff, that's, that is certainly the, un, the unanswered question, you know, in the back of the mind. Um, and I, I, would, I would imagine that's what, that's what is fascinating. Um, I actually, you know, I got into, I got into when I'm very young, I got into studying Ireland. I, I guess I have, you know, Irish uh, heritage and all that, and uh, it didn't take very long for me to work my way through Irish history to, you know, uh, step into the, the realm of the Irish Republican Army, and uh, immediately became very fascinated by it, and it abhorred and fascinated, you know, and um, I bring that up because, you know, when I, my, when I eventually went to Ireland for my first time, um, everything I'd read in books it was totally destroyed when I actually landed on the ground because you see it for your own eyes. And um, I was actually in Belfast, and there was like a tank behind us in traffic, you know. And there were actually British troops on the streets patrolling, and um, there were roadblocks and razor wire around cities like Derry. And uh, it, it all of a sudden it becomes very real. Um, and I think it's interesting that um, you know you you have a fascination in in if it's from like a historian point of view or. Or, or an artist's point of view, and, and, and then when it comes to life, you think, you know, wow, maybe I don't want this, you know. So uh, had I been around in the 60s, early 70s, had I been in a situation of, say, like a, like a Peter Jürgen Buch or something, or um, a Margaret Schiller, you know, or something like that, um, someone maybe not um, directly related like in Bader Meinhof um, from the core group, had I been approached on the street, you know, uh, had I met, uh, Ulrike Meinhof or something. Um, is it possible that I could have gotten swept away in the romanticism? Uh, no doubt about it. You know, no doubt about it. Um, would, would I have probably regretted after the reality set in? Most definitely. You know, yeah. <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, just because because of the massive machine you're up against, and um, you know, the romanticism and and the idea of of of, of it, and then the execution of it. Um, and, and ultimately, I think that's what um, I, I even think you you, you drew, that, drew that conclusion in one of your essays that, and I totally agree with you that um, 
you know, the the execution of the idea was that ever thought out of all the of all the uh, times they were they were thinking about it and 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 hammering each other about it and and just constant rethought and rethought and rethought, you know. But did they ever actually really think about you know the outcome, you know? Um, and it, it's hard to tell, you know. It's hard yeah. to tell what you would do. Um, the explosive times going on back then. I mean, I, I certainly think we see some of it today. I mean, I, we certainly live in a different culture, uh, and we also certainly live in a different era. Because um, by the same token, you got to ask yourself. You know, groups like the Irish Republican Army, Biden, what would they do if they had iPhones? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You know, what, it's it's what, funny because I, I, I ask myself a lot, what what is the possibility of, the, of something like this happening today? And I kind of approach it from a couple levels. One is, what's the likelihood of a group like that being able to get away with what they did for as long as they did? And from a police kind of governmental force standpoint, it would be – it's just a lot, lot harder to, to do something like that because policing is so much more effective. Um, but from a moral standpoint, what is the likelihood of that, something like that coming up in some other different way of radicalism, a constant underground group happening? Um, and I don't know. I, when, when I, I live in Seattle, and, and when we had those uh, WTO riots, which I was in, and I had I, it was terrifying and great fun and and exciting and scary. And and at the time, I remember thinking, man, this is just a one cop shooting one guy away from a June second, nineteen sixty seven kind of riot where you're creating martyrs that could create a new movement like this. And then later, I thought, nah, I I don't know. I just don't see. It just feels like a different. A different time. I just think it would be really hard to put something together that could have a movement like they put together because it's so because policing is so effective. That said, um, the I look at the the ALF and the ELF, which were very successful by having a very completely cell-based organization. They were on the run. This cell that was on the run here in the Northwest for. Ten years before the FBI finally caught them, and they caused a tremendous amount of damage, whatever their reasons for doing it. So I don't know. I, I just don't know. I find it exciting that that time period. It's also awful, <laughs> but I but I can only imagine others uh, in times of economic stress. I would assume would find it equally um, exciting and power. And that's why the crisis the last couple of years had me thinking maybe there is something to this but nothing has come out of it at all so I don't uh, we would have uh, we would have facebooked our way through the revolution <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, yeah you know I mean yeah you make a great point um, it, and, and I think we have to you know I think we're scared to draw a line as well um, your earlier question about how, how does the band feel about writing songs about this kind of stuff you know you know I, I don't know if I ever really asked him because on stage you know I'm liable to make um uh, all kinds of comments um, uh, on the album. Um, you know, there, there, like there's, for instance, there's a song on the album called "Another Work Song," mm-hmm. and it's uh, it was written shortly after um, Obama got elected, and, um, and and it wasn't really it wasn't really a rant against any thing in particular, other than just the fact of being swept up by by a union or by a president or by a uh, you know, a, an urban guerrilla group, or whatever the case may have you, being swept by an, an, an ideology, 
and not really knowing what was on the other side of that, you know. And um, I, I think I think people are scared in some senses to think about the possibility of saying, you know, I don't agree with what uh, a government does, or I don't agree with what a, 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 a an organization does or, or a corporation. Um, but what makes you actually cross the line um, or what makes you be okay with being fascinated by it? Um, those are certainly interesting questions. I think that is usually the protagonist in most of the songs I write. Um, we have another song called After the Fire, which was, which was based on a, on, a, on a guy who was in the official IRA named Joe McCann. Mm-hmm. And um, he was um, assassinated by the British um, in Belfast, and I think also 1972. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I have to believe in my heart that Joe wasn't a, a horrible person. And I say that because I've, I've, uh, in the last uh, couple of years, I've, I've, uh, been in correspondence with his daughter. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you actually, it, it gets a little different when you actually meet, the the family or the person uh, uh, or somebody directly involved and and, and uh, you have to put some worth and some faith in, in their opinion yeah um, and what you know what what I have found or what she has to say about the situation surrounding the times in Ireland in the in the late sixties and early seventies and what you might pull off the shelf of your uh, your average history book are two totally different things. Um, and so what I have found is, um, you know, in this, in this, in this, I don't know how, how people would react to this, but in, in, in relations to Bader Meinhof too, I have to believe to some degree that maybe some of the things that they were trying to do, um, or maybe some of the things they said or wrote did have some worth and, and were proper and, and okay things, um, to do, feel and say. Um, but with that being said, the way they went about it, um, it's certainly questionable as well. So it puts you in this strange paradox, you know. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's but it's a paradox I like. You uh, you're you brought up Mar- Margaret Schiller, who's a member of the Bottom IF group, and a friend of mine and I have been corresponding about her because he just read her book and and uh, it's fascinating. I just read it myself. Yeah, you know? I actually have it read, That's so it. both of you guys have it up on me. But he thought it was an amazing book as well. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's very. Uh, it has a very different uh, feel. It, it uh, there's some interesting things things she says, and 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 uh, and uh, what she she says a few things about um, about Bider that I that in corresponding with Joe's daughter, um, Joe McCann's daughter, that you know it's like you know like some redeeming things, you know, and you're like, and it just totally sends your mind for a loop. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Because if you like have this what? image, like what? What were? You, what? What did you hear? Or what did she say? Um, Margaret in the Margaret Schiller book. Yep. Or, or or in Joe McCann's case. Oh, in 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 either case. Um, well, I mean, in, in Joe McCann's case, you know, I I really believe that, like I said, I really believe that he was, uh, and and this this is sort this is sort of, again a, a, a lot of a lot of what I write, this comes out in a lot of what I write, both poetry and in music is, is, um, what, what I would, I guess, loosely say being caught in an impossible situation. Yeah. Um, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure if the Northern Ireland conflict would have been around. I don't, I don't, I don't know if Joe would have been put in that position. Um, 
I really do believe he was probably put in that position and and maybe he had no uh, no way out. Uh, Bobby Sands the same way who was a, a um in the IRA and was a was a, a famous hunger striker that died in the nineteen eighty one hunger strikes was 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 I believe the same way after all the research I've done is is I think Bobby was a very good man and I think he was and, and, and maybe a lot of people wouldn't like me saying that but I, but I think he was put in an impossible situation. Um in Margaret Schiller's book, you know, she just makes she makes some interesting comments about um, when she first met the group and how they really seemed to be on the same page. They had a uh, you know a a good sort of vibe between the group. They were committed. They really believed in what they were doing, and they didn't really seem like bad people. And you know, I'm sure if you talk to somebody who possibly maybe was a um, a target or or had had another side uh, to the story you know they might be abhorred by that but again you know taking yourself out of the equation and just looking at it from a, from from above it i you know that's the that's the paradox i'm constantly dealing with you know um can you really rationalize these 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 groups and these people and their actions um can it be both good and bad? Well, that that was you know? that was the absolute that was the crux of the kind of discussion I'm having via email with my friend who who read that book. He 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 did a review for it, an excellent review. Um, he's a smarter guy than I am, and he he wrote a review uh, on Amazon, and he pulled a quote out where she was explaining um, why, or she was somewhat trying to explain why they. Um, why they brought violence to Europe, and she was saying essentially that in that there was all these third world third world um, uh, activities going on, and leftists in Europe would say, "Oh, it's fine for them. They they need they they need to have violence over there for their cause." But over here, um, we have democracy, and we don't need that. And she interpreted that as essentially racist basically saying oh these third worlders little people the world they need violence yet why can't we have it over here that was her justification explanation for violence and um and it's internally consistent logic my only as i was explaining to my friend the only the the thing that always flows through my mind whenever i analyze this stuff is on one level i'm a pretty left-wing radical kind of person politically internally and on another level, um, I also, you know, I have this personal history in that in that left wing terrorists could have easily killed my mom and my dad when I was when we were living in Germany when I was a little kid because my dad was this bomb disposal tech and my mom was where a bomb was left and stuff. And I think, man, had my mother or dad died, they absolutely would have justified their deaths with this kind of tortured logic about the third world and the need for violence in the first world. And I'm thinking, boy, at some point, are you ever going to accept kind of a personal responsibility for the personal action of killing somebody rather than this kind of global, yes, we were violent responsibility? So I don't know. I I don't have like a real effective answer, and I'm not sure where – and again, I have two kinds of areas of thought on it, but I also, but one part of me is going, yeah, you know what? If you don't have absolute radicals that are willing to 
fight for something. They may be wrong, they may be right, but there's nothing ever changes unless somebody is willing to go beyond the bounds of normal convention, you know, uh, con- normal convention. And then the flip side of that is, but if you think they are wrong and they're hurting people you know, um, how do you justify that, you know? I, I don't know. It's just a really painful, interesting subject. And, and I can fully imagine, if, if I was Margaret Schiller, how empowering, exciting it must have been to meet these people because they absolutely did have a very strong conviction, a very consistent logic behind what they were doing, and it must have been exciting and empowering. It must have been a incredible time even though it ended so poorly for so many of them well yeah and i totally agree with you i mean i I think we're all conflicted with that um that sort of um logic if you will i mean my my brother made uh my brother david made an excellent point the other night when we were talking um he said you know in, in in so many times in historical conversations people talk about the effect and they don't talk about the cause and i think he's spot on there because um you know in, and again, I'll quickly um, fade back over to Ireland because you know I think I think that the two are in, I, I think the two are very interesting. They're, they're probably the two. Um, um, actually, when I was probably a teenager, I came I came across this book in a bookstore and I bought it and it, and it, it, it was called I think uh, it was called the Terrorist or Weapons Leaders and Tactics. Oh yeah, I have that. And, uh, I'm looking at okay, it. Okay, right yeah, now. and so it's one of, yeah, one of many. Yeah. About that, I think is that one by Richard Clutterbuck or is that? Uh... Or there's a couple out there, but yeah. Yeah, it's like, or yeah, yeah, and and you know, the, so of course I was interested in the IRA at the time, but you know, when they get to the the chapters of the groups, the, the, of course the first country is Germany, and the first uh, group is the RAF, and so I was like, well, who are these guys, you know? And um, I think what's interesting in, in Ireland is that um, you've got a situation where you could you, you could justify it, I guess, two ways. If you're if you're Irish and you're a Catholic. And you're minding your own business, and you're just trying to go about your day, and you're constantly being harassed by uh, the the Royal Ulster Constable and the police. There, you're constantly being harassed by the British soldiers. You're constantly being harassed by uh, the minority population, which would have been the Protestant or the English. Um, and you have no way out, and you're living in in in, in sort of quote unquote like ghetto like you know uh, places. You can't find work. Um, you just get, you know, you're just frustrated, nowhere to go, and one day you, you know, you hook up with a friend, and he says, you know, hey, we're we're doing something about it. It's very easy to draw the line. It's, it's you know, from point A to point B. Uh, it's easy to see how they got there, um, in in one sense, and then like you said though, in the other sense, when it turns real, when it turns to an act of violence, um, and that's why I said, I, I, me personally, I have to separate the best I can. Um, the, the, the generality from the specific. So where, in a sense, I might um, almost, I, where I could see like Joe McCann's side or Bobby Sands' side, it doesn't mean I see the IRA side, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and the same in Bader Meinhof. Um, when you think about post-World War II Germany, and you, uh, uh, I think, you know, it was an interesting read, the, uh, the Projectiles for the People book. Yeah. Um, uh, when you read the fir- the opening, oh, I don't know, maybe the first hundred pages, it's a very, very compelling argument that you've got a, you know, basically, uh, you know, World War II ends, and just almost as soon as World War II ends, Germany's back in business, um, backed by the American economy, 
and um, you have a lot of ex-Nazis um, back in government, and you have a lot of sort of, um, you know, it's almost like, let's sweep this under the rug, let's just get back to business. If you're a 17, 18, whatever, 20-year-old kid, um, and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're coming of age and you're looking around going, um, and of course, in, in Margaret Schiller's book, she makes the claim that they weren't taught anything about World War II. Um, they were, uh, her claim in, in the book, or the way I understand it is, is that, you know, basically all that was kept silent. Um, they didn't want to talk about it, you know. Um, and so you 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 grow up and you start finding all these books and people are telling you like, hey, man, did you know what happened? And these, some of these people are still in power and all of a sudden you're like going, well, this is ridiculous, you know. Um, the, the Vietnam War is going on. We've got all these people that supposedly did horrible things in World War II now and they're running our government. And, uh, you know, Again, you start getting that real, real murky water of being able to start drawing a line. Well, that's from point the, a to that's, point the um, that's the amazing thing about about the group. If you really, I mean, one way to look at the Bader Meinhof era is that their arguments about society, you could make a very strong case that they were almost uniformly correct. They were they they were they were concerned about what they felt was this fascist underbelly that was controlling all of German society and you know what by their arguments they were true there was no doubt about people it. that were former Nazis the the American government and the Allies made a conscious effort to stop what they called the denazification of Germany because they realized it would be too pernicious so they let them go back in place so at a certain point the person who was running the armaments industry that employed slave labor, he was now running Volkswagen or whatever. So they were they mm-hmm. were they were running that, and their and their arguments about society and and other stuff is is a entirely consistent, entirely appropriate argument to make. That I guess the real problem was was that their assumption that the German people would actually support them when they started their war, and that wasn't borne out in any fact, but their actual arguments and their concerns about society and in general, even though the one concern about their, I mean, they had a concern, they felt that German society was, um, that there was a repression, and I think you could argue it was actually a pretty free society, Germany was at the time, surprisingly free, given their past. That said, um, they were making very legitimate, very Arguments that were I around at that time, I would have firmly believed, and I still pretty firmly believe. Um, I just think their 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 major challenge was that they had this assumption that the that the public would be rapturous in their love of how they were exposing this fascist underbelly. In fact, the general public was horrified and was supportive. It's somewhat akin to what happened after 9/11. Um, the American public, the 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 government just instituted just an enormous number of wide-ranging efforts that are supposedly to curb terrorists and, um, of course, had nothing to do with terrorism. And what happened? Just huge percentage of the public said, sure, go go right ahead. It, of course, it drove me nuts, but the vast majority seemed to like that, and that's what happened in Germany, much to the chagrin of progressives, but... I mean, to me, the biggest mistake of the Bader-Meinhof era, the Bader-Meinhof, was their inability to recognize 
the support base and, and lack thereof. They just assumed there was this millions of people just waiting to continue their revolution. In reality, it was dozens or hundreds, maybe, at most. Well, and all, yeah, and all, and all groups go through it, and it's funny. It's almost like you want, you almost want to, like, kind of like shake them and say, have you not done your research? Because, you know, you know, same thing in Ireland, same thing with the Weather Underground, uh, same thing with the Black Panther Party. I mean, these groups, you know, I think at first the, the, the public seems to be with them, um, and then all of a sudden reality sets in, and, uh, you know, because we, we can never forget what, what people, it's amazing what people will trade um, for safety. Um, yeah. for, for, the, for the idea of feeling protected, they will, people will almost give all of their rights away if they think um, they are safer. And that's what happened to America post 9-11. Um, we almost gave, you know, we gave the government, um, I, I think, as much leash as we could give and said, yeah, yeah go after these guys. But go after who? And, uh, you know, um, that that's different than, say, Bidermanov, because these are people that just all of a sudden, hey, we're taking this on our own, you know? We're we're not going to ask the public their permission. We're going to go out, and we're going to start something up, and the public's going to dig it, and everybody's going to rise up with us. The proletariat's going to stand beside us, and we're going to take this thing over. And like you said, like 50 people are like, yeah, and everybody else is like, no, <laughs> you know? And, um which is interesting, um, but you know, and, and from my standpoint, I don't really, from my historical perspective uh, and what I like to study, modern terrorism and, and I guess modern terrorism would be probably post 9/11 doesn't doesn't seem to interest me as much um, as as sort of you know post World War II through the 80s does. Um, it makes more sense to me. Um, what, what's going on today doesn't seem to make as much sense to me, and I don't know if I really care to weigh in too much on it, but I do feel sort of tied to a lot of these groups in the 70s, um, mostly for that way of what I said. I'm, I'm fascinated by the, uh, the paradox that they find themselves in. Um, I understand the cause. I understand the idea I don't understand the execution, and ultimately, I I don't understand the failure. And so, going back again, way back to that question, you know, what would I have done in those times? I don't know because you you would have to, if you were logical, you'd have to say, "There's no way we can win." Yeah. You know, there's no way. You know, did Biden-Meinhof really think they could take on the German state or even the world? Did they really think they could start? Um, well, you know. I think Guevara was, was, was the same way. I think he thought, well, we'll start little revolutions around the world, and we'll overthrow all the governments, and everybody will catch on, and and it'll be great. Well, you know, he ends up in Bolivia with you know just a couple of people, you know, yeah. and a poorly armed, you know, no, you know, under, you know, no, no food, no supplies, no, no support, and you, you know, um, that's. It's in that moment, I think, that I am most fascinated. But uh, isn't, as a isn't it, the thing that fascinates me that is, man, that must be that must be the greatest of all feelings to be certain you can change the world. Because I don't think yeah. I could, and I can imagine to be Andreas Bader or Gudrun Enslin or Che Guevara. I can imagine having that period of thought and how how powerful and exciting that must feel. Even if they're and, wrong. And, you know, Bader Manoff's different. But what makes them, it's, I think, so interesting is, 
you know, you've got almost the same thing happening in Ireland at the same time, but you've got a totally different uh, set of things where the IRA were being imprisoned and they were being treated like criminals. Um, and even in the 80s, you know, Margaret Thatcher refused to give them um, special treatment. She looked at them as criminals. She wouldn't give them political status at all, which is what the hunger strikes are all about. Um, and then you've got Bider Meinhof, who, I mean, a lot, a lot of people could argue were, were certainly more criminal um, in, 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 in a certain respect. Um, I, know, I mean, I know the IRA did bank robberies and all that, but I mean, um, and they get a special prison bill for them, yeah. and they get total, total political status. And they get these cells where, you know, the, 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 the pictures of, like, a Bider's cell, you know, where he's got the long, tall, you know, the tall bookcase with just, you know, that, it's like a little library in there. And they have record players. And um, he's, you know, they're giving all kinds of meds to um, downers and stuff. And, uh, well, and, and you, have, um, you, have a, you have a situation where the men and women are housed together. I, I'm trying to picture a place anywhere in the world where you have a prison where a group of men and women are allowed to cohabitate together in prison. I mean, it was really remarkable how the German government essentially agreed with them, saying, you're political, and we're going to treat you fundamentally differently. They, 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 it was like they were all mutually agreed in this, and they could have gone a totally different way, but they chose not to. You know, it's sort of oh, like Oh, yeah, the they, could have, they could have totally gone, you know, the way of, uh, yeah, and I think that's probably what first fascinated me about, you know, of course I didn't work on the song until after I probably digested a, a, a couple of thousand pages of uh, various texts and online and your website and some other things um, over the last couple of years. And I always tell people, you know, a lot of people come up and they say they really like that song. I said, yeah, it's amazing. I I, I probably read three, four thousand pages of text. And I got a song out of it, you know. <laughs> and it, you know, was, I don't know if it was worth it, but um, uh, but you know, that's kind of what happens with me. I I, I find something that interests me. Uh, Guy Debord was the same way. Who was a who was a, a French movie maker and situation internationalist and um, uh, amongst other things and. Um, you know, I just I I sort of tripped on Guy Debord in a, in a weird way, and I, I you know it was almost like I just couldn't get enough. I had to read everything about this guy, um, and the same thing happened when I got to the end of the when I got to the end of the trip, um, and I I had exhausted myself on everything I could about Guy Debord and trying to figure him out and his philosophies and his actions and his life and and all that. I got like a three-minute song out of it, and <laughs> you know, and maybe maybe a couple of poems or a couple of references and poems, um, and I was done. You know, I mean, um, and I don't even know if the song, um, I, I don't even know if the song Stamheim. I, I don't I don't know if what actually came out and and what I took in um, actually translate. Um, so, well, t- give me your take after reading and learning all about it, because just as, as a quick way of background for anybody listening, Stammheim um, refers to uh, Stuttgart-Stammheim prison, which is a prison just on the outskirts of, of uh, Stuttgart. It's where the major Bader-Meinhof defendants were housed in anticipation of and during 
a trial. They were very concerned about um, the German government about people kidnapping the, the prisoners or, or releasing them. So they decided to build an extremely expensive prison um, courtroom right on the prison grounds. They housed the, the prisoners up in this um, maximum security uh, cells that were up on the top of this kind of high-rise prison. Um, it also refers to, when people mention Stamheim, the incredible controversy about not only the trial, but their strange uh, deaths, which were officially ruled suicide. Um, but they but they were suicide. Two of the people killed themselves with handguns in what had been described as the most secure prison block in the world. Um so it and they weren't supposed to be able to be communicating with each other yet they somehow managed to coordinate this suicide. I think that um, several writers, including Stefan Aus, present a pretty convincing case that they sure as heck could have killed themselves. But I don't know that we're ever going to know, and it is certainly um, an area of subject that rivals the Kennedy assassination in terms of the the possibilities for legitimate and not so legitimate conspiracies surrounding it. So anyway, so that's the background of Stamheim. What was what's your take on the on maybe the strange deaths and the and the um whole atmosphere around the trial? Well, it, it, you know, it's certainly one of the most bizarre stories I've ever come across. I mean, it's just the um the 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 amazing amount of uh discrepancies and um uh, as we talked about earlier, just, I mean, sort of the way the whole thing was done is, I think, just as an overview, you know, for anybody that hasn't read much about it, I mean, I think anybody would come to the table at first and just go, you got to be kidding me. Yep. I mean, the the courts were obviously, I mean, skewed. I mean, it, it, it did they ever really have a chance to defend themselves? Um, I don't know. I mean, um the way they were in turn, I mean, I, I think uh, Oz makes a great case uh, in his book about, you know, all, the way they were treated and the fact of, you know, isolation and uh, sleep deprivation and uh, um, just sort of being, I mean, left alone a lot. And um, you even look at the pictures from the time they enter the prison till their deaths, and you just see this, I mean, they age. Yeah. Uh, by, uh, I mean, centuries. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I have still really kind of got my my mind around the whole thing. Um, I know that when, um, you know, I, I can certainly, uh, I, I'm real, I'm real weird about conspiracy theories because I, I tend to believe that there's there's probably an ounce of truth in just about everything. Mm -hmm. Um. So, for instance, like the deaths, you know, did they commit suicide or was it, you know, planned by the – I mean, everything I've read, I could probably go both ways. And, uh, and the fact that they – the fact that they've kept, they kept their brains I thought was, you know, interesting or, or, the, or the alleged fact that they kept the brains um, – of the three members, uh, of course, they, 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 they know they have Ulrike um, uh, Meinhof. Which they found um, in, a, in a doctor's office 20 years later. Yeah, just hanging out, you know, <laughs> <laughs> hanging out on the coffee table uh, or whatever. But, uh, yeah, but, the, you know, and the, and the, alle the allegation that the, the other three were, were, were also kept and, and are to this day are still kept or whatever, the, you know, those rumors are. But, I mean, 
it, it is truly bizarre, and I know in, in, in other countries, I mean, it's the only it's the only story I've ever heard like it. Um, I thought it was really strange, um, and I don't know about you, but uh, I thought it was very strange, um, the, the amount of drugs that they were administering, um, yeah. uh, the sedatives, and um, it's like, uh, it's almost like, or Austin at least makes it sound like they're almost allowed to have whatever they wanted to a certain extent, you know. Um, you know, go get me some downers, okay, go get me some uppers, okay, you know, I need some more books. They're allowed to study um, books to further their education on being an urban gorilla. Um, it's, it's, which, it's insane kind of the vast amount of books they had. And, and on one yeah. level, it, it belies the notion, you know, there, it, it was sort of popular in the press to, to paint Botter as this kind of juvenile delinquent dummy uh, guy. He's actually pretty smart and if you um look at the books that he read that he clearly knew and internalized you realize he knew his political underpinnings he had a he had a, a background stronger than almost anybody there he was incredibly smart very resourceful very intelligent person and and oh, um and you know the the thing about um my thing about Stamheim when i look at Stamheim is is um you know, my my sense is I kind of support Oust, and a lot of that's because I respect Oust, which is he's sort of thinking, yeah, it probably was suicide, but here's a bunch of, but I will never know, and here's a bunch of things. And among the things he brings up, which I find, the one thing that I find most interesting is the fact that supposedly three gunshots went off. There's there's uh, there There's people that were, there's guards, they were like 30 feet away. How could they have not heard those? How could they have waited several hours to come in there? And one of the things that I would like to do, I don't know if you're aware, but they're tearing down Stamheim Prison probably in 2012. And it seems to me those prison cells have been empty ever since Bader Meinhof. And it seems to me this would be the perfect time to have a, a film crew go up there and do an acoustical analysis just to test out some of the things that happened and see how they comport to the official theory and maybe clear them up because I would like to know what it sounds like if I was a guard sitting in those guard houses um, to hear what it sounds like. Cause that, that to me is probably the strangest part of the whole story. I think it's, it's possible. I think it's pretty certain or, or pretty possible that the guards had all been quietly warned by members of the Bader Meinhof group at certain points saying, Hey, uh, Hans, um, how's your daughter Giselle doing? Um, I know she goes to this elementary school, and I know your wife lives at this house right here. In other words, I imagine that, that, that the guards were fairly terrified, in a sense, of these people they had to care for every day. So it's possible they saw stuff that they didn't tell about, and that might be part of the issue. It's also pretty amazing that the, that the, the tapes, the, the, you know, one of these cells was bugged by the German government, and the German government admitted it, claimed, oh, no, we only bugged them on one day, like they would go to the trouble putting bugs in and only bug them one day, and that the tape transcripts have never turned up. I think if those tape transcripts turned up, it would, like, be the most amazing piece of news in the history of post-war Germany, but I don't anticipate it. But, well, yeah, I just, I, I personally have a hard time believing that that they were not under constant surveillance. I mean, that, I mean, it, it, it's clear if if you read a lot of the transcripts and that that you know, and again, we're assuming that that we as as a as a reading public have the right information. Um, 
you know, it, it, it's clear their rights were violated. I mean, if, as a, as a prisoner, you know, and I know Bider had, had constantly had, you know, referred back to the Geneva Convention and basically, because uh, it's something the, the IRA would do is, is if you're going to treat us like a political prisoner, then we, we have certain rights. Well, mm-hmm. did the Bider Monoff gang in, in prison have those rights? I mean, from what I've read, obviously, in a lot of ways, no. They were not, um, that, I mean, it was handled very, very, it was very messy. Um, and almost handled very, I, I, like, like I said, I mean, um, you're, you are a political prisoner. You're in a special prison. Um, they're feeding the public as if these guys are political prisoners. But then in, in, in the other sense, they're, they're letting them continue their education on how to be a better urban gorilla. They're supplying them with drugs. Um, you know, they're letting them have record players. Um, they, they would have had to have known of the communication between them, uh, talking to each other between uh, cells or whatever. Um, it, it's all just so bizarre. And, um, you know, I, I, I know, you know, from my standpoint, I don't get so much involved as, as, a, as a writer anyway. I don't get so much bogged down with, um, like, like I, love, I love Luke Cain's record, um, just, just in the sense of just kind of the feel of it. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool, it kind of puts you or, or, or seemingly kind of puts you there. Um, but my intention is, as, as a writer, and at least with this song and, and probably even the song about, like the song about Joe McCann, um, going back to him was, was sort of based on, on, on one particular idea that I kind of pulled out about his life. I wasn't trying to write a biography on his life. I wasn't trying to answer the question, was this guy a good guy or a bad guy? Um, I thought it was interesting that um, once Joe became a threat to the government and once he became a threat even to the IRA, once, once, once he raised the, the, the level um, after his, uh, the Belfast Brigade, he was in the, the brigade held down the British in, in the markets area of Belfast, and they had this cover on the on one of the magazines of this of kind of a, a blazing background and Joe's silhouette and I mean the people went crazy for it. I mean they they, they really turned him into sort of like a Robin Hood sort of a thing. And you know, it turned the tables immediately. So when I called the song After the Fire and I said that they'll hunt you down after the fire, meaning once he became enough of a threat, the game totally changed. And in the song I reference many people. I reference Martin Luther King I reference Malcolm X. I reference Bobby Sands and Patsy O'Hara of the, of the 81 Hunger Strikers there in, um, in the H blocks in, in Northern Ireland. And they're, they all have the same thing. I mean, Martin Luther King is a great example. It's like um, uh, he, he didn't never carry a weapon, uh, to my knowledge. Um, he was out there um, in, in, in a civil way trying to, to change. And um, he's assassinated. Um, and you got to think to yourself, you know, this guy was a real threat. You know, uh, I, I guess in the same way as Gandhi as well. Um, a real threat, and once you become a real threat, things change. Same with Bader Meinhof. Um, they actually, they go from sort of, uh, you know, starting out, doing their thing, to uh, the most wanted people in Germany. Um, and, and possibly the world, and, and of course they start doing things like like you know hooking up with other organizations. Um, uh, they hook up with the Palestinians. Um, I guess there's claims that they were they were hooked up with the Stasi. 
Um, well, they all of a sudden, def- definitely were during the 90s yeah. because they were how you know me- former members and in hiding members were housed by the Stasi. Yeah, sure. So, so they're not they're not just you know they're not just chump change anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they actually start becoming players, and and the government starts taking you know, like, okay, we've got a real problem on our hands, and how are we going to deal with this? And most governments seem to deal um, with that scenario usually in the same way. They uh, they take everything they got and they go after it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the the so I you know it in 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 the song coming at it from a writer uh, as as an idea for the song um, that was sort of the the, the idea I took. I, I kind of used loosely. I kind of took Peter Jurgen Buch as sort of the inspiration, um, and it's almost seen, uh, the song's obviously seen as a protagonist situation through through the second um, or maybe even third RAF uh, generation's eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not seen through the, the core group's eyes. It's, it's, uh, it's seen from, you know, and, and, and it's broken up basically in three parts, the three verses, you know. Um, you could sort of, take the song in, in the first verse um, the Bader Meinhof the, the core group is being arrested um, in a second um, they're going through the, the they're, they're at Stamheim and then of course the third they're, they're gone and that's why you know towards the end of the song in the lyrics um, I, I wrote they destroyed you but not me um, and it's, it's a person saying you know and, and that, that would be the second uh, the people that actually were not first generation um Red Army faction members um, saying we're going to take the cause up, um, and we're not, you know, we we I, I don't even know if some of those guys even met Biter. Um, or that's actually, uh, that's actually a good point. Um, a lot of them did, but certainly a lot of them didn't. Especially this this group um, that came of the like like um, like say Christian Klar, who was right. effectively the leader of the group through the 80s and 90s and and in prison for most of that time but he was he was involved with Peter Jurgen Buch in um 77 the Stammheim kidnappings and I mean not Stammheim the uh Hans Martin Schleier kidnapping stuff but I don't think he ever actually met any of those leaders that said certainly got his marching orders from them it's it's an interesting dynamic in there that how their first um goal was revolutionary struggle but the minute their leaders were imprisoned their number one goal of their comrades on the outside was getting leaders out of prison and prisoners rights it's kind of interesting how it morphed into that some struggles they some some type of revolutionary movements leaders going into prison are forgotten about and you move on to the next leader outside of prison but in this case it was very much directed by the leaders within prison, um, which I find is interesting that how they were able to maintain those connections, but how people were willing to say, yeah, my leader is somebody I'll never talk to directly. I won't meet. I'm going to get coded letters via messengers from them, and they're the ones who I'm going to do their orders, march their orders from. I mean, they, they, they must have been very alluring to be able to have that kind of power over people that they could never talk to directly. Oh, no doubt. And I think, you know, I think, uh, well, I mean, Margaret Schiller certainly makes that case um, early on in her book where she, when she first meets them and she says, you know, there was obviously um, a wow factor. I mean, an attraction that, that, uh, you know, a vibe that you could just, that just radiated off of them. 
Um, and of course, you know, I don't, as a writer, I I don't really I don't really necessarily feel like I I don't really pick sort of how things come to me. Um, a lot of times, it's after the fact that I I relook I look back at the at the at maybe the song or the poem and I think, oh, that's what it's about. I might have a totally different opinion about it when I'm writing it, but after I hear it back or play it enough times, or maybe someday, you know, one day the light bulb goes off, and I go, oh, you know, and 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 in, and in Stamline, that that certainly might that that's what happened. Uh, there's two dynamics going on. Um, one, the one I just explained, sort of being told from like a second uh, or even maybe third person sort of sort of view, but also I'm dealing in the song with the question of, um, you know, it says in the song, um, um, or that cause it found you, you know, you made a choice to find a cause or that cause it found you. Um, I, I always like dealing with this question, especially in, in a lot of my songs. It, is it fate? Did, I mean, did, you know, did we have to have a Biter Meinhof? Um, was it going to happen anyway? Yeah, I mean, what, what do you we, think? What, what's your thought on that? In, in German society, do you think that it was inevitable it, to happen? Well, I, I certainly think I, I certainly think something was inevitable. Um, the, the, the part I can't answer still to this day, and I'm, but I'm still constantly fascinated, and probably will write a, a bulk of my material for the rest of my life on, mm-hmm. is that you know I, I always I always talk to people, and the, the example I use is usually like Bonnie and Clyde, because when you read about Bonnie and Clyde, they're like. You know, they're romanticized in one way, and then you read about them, and you're like, oh, my God. I mean, it was just a horrible story. But you think, but, you know, did we have to have them? I mean, you know, was, uh, you know, did, did God or whoever, you know, were they in, I mean, were they going to be here regardless? Was this yeah. story going to go down? And, and I, that's why I had to sneak that line in there because, you know, I tend to wonder with Bader Meinhof, as I often do um, in all my studies um, in, on the Irish Republican Army because I – Sort of the way you are with Bader Meinhof, I probably have a better foothold in, in Irish history. But but the same the same thing equates is that you know did did Bader Meinhof find the cause or did it find them? And you know, and, and I'm I, not, and that's why I leave the question open ended in the song because I'm not I'm not really sure. Um, maybe it was a little bit of both. Um, the the other the other the other part of being the artist and and the band really did a great job with it. Um, Jay and Rob really, really did a good job of 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 working in a sound that because I always like to try to capture. I, I my goal was to capture. I wanted to capture uh, Stamheim in sound. I, sure. I wanted I wanted to try to figure out how close you know if I was there, you know if I was Biter or if I was sitting in that cell or if I was maybe just an inmate next to him or something, what would it sound like and you know what what how close we get um what's interesting is the original demo i did for the band uh, to show them the song is um I, I usually demo out my garage and a lot of times it's just acoustic guitar and maybe some ambient sound and a vocal track just so i can get the idea down and what i had done is i'd, I'd watched the in love with tara uh documentary yep. and um the the final schleier um um uh, communique um the the in the in the in 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 love with terror that the voice comes on somewhere during like you know the program and it does you know you hear the voice after 43 days we have put an end to Hans Martin Schleier's pitiful and corrupt yeah, existence yeah and miserable existence. I thought that was yeah and I thought that was I was like the the way that's kind of crackly and uh, I don't I, I don't know who who was saying who was actually speaking um, I don't know who issued the communique whose voice that is but in the original demo um, I looped that. Um, 
and the the, the guitar kind of comes in and it just kind of loops and the loop kind of fades in until I get to the first vocal and I was like oh it was so you know I thought it was so cool and then when we decided to cut the record and we knew we were going to do the song I really was pushing to do that so uh, to have to have that loop and then the song just kind of grind in but Ultimately, I think we decided not to because we didn't know what the ramifications of of, of using that uh, communique would be, both legally and also to the general public. Yeah. Um, would they look at the portrayal as being, you know, pro, um, you know, kidnapping and pro, uh, you know, uh, terrorist, and and which of course we're not. You know, I, I don't. I think the beautiful thing about the portrayal is. Um, Everything about us is in the name. We're, we're, we're portraying. We're, we're basically the mirror image of society. Um, I try to write everything sort of as uh, I, I take a look at society. It looks back at me, and then I regurgitate it. Um, and that's sort, certainly what happened with the song is I, I, I accumulated thousands of pages of Bider Meinhof information. And basically spit it back out in the song Stamheim, you know. And, uh, well, let's let's listen to um, a few minutes of Stamheim real quick, and then we'll come back and talk about some of the other stuff you're involved with. So we're going to listen to this real quick.
let's talk about you know your your other stuff. You actually shared with me a book of poetry that you wrote that was very provocative, called "Burn This Place Down and Sleep in the Ashes." And and reading through it, I detected some themes which I related to Schnamheim in that there's a strong um, element of death and suicide in this thing. Am I missing? Am, am I missing something? Or no, you know, no. So so where does that come from? And is that and is that part of what drew you to Stamheim as well, the story, just because of this whole strange nature of their suicides. Well, no, yeah, no doubt about it. You hit the nail on the head for sure. Um, and, and I appreciate your added detail. Um, if, if I didn't mention suicide enough in that book, you know. <laughs> um, and that, you know the very the very first of, of our conversation where you said do people kind of you know look at you weird or anything? Um, not, I don't think so much the, the political stuff because the political stuff. I, I don't really weigh in too much on. I, I don't. I'm not. You know, I'm not leftist. I'm not rightist. I'm not. I'm not dull enough of a person to say I'm. I'm in the middle or libertarian or anarchist. You know, I mean, um, politics are, are such a, a funny thing, and I think politics are a very organic thing. And so I move to and fro in my thoughts about politics, but I don't in other areas. And uh, yeah, the whole. Uh, the whole fascination with sort of uh, death and suicide and all that—that—that that, that is obviously something that I'm I'm very fascinated by. So yeah, you're right. Um, the the attraction to Bader Meinhof was certainly heightened by the end of of their story, um, or at least um, the uh, four individuals um, uh, that did commit or supposedly commit suicide. Um, yeah, the book does have a strong theme of, of death. I wrote, I wrote that book in two parts. I wrote it um, basically in, in two three-month sittings. I kind of did a January through March and then sort of a, sort of a oh, I don't know, roughly a September through November, December of, um, I believe, 2007, uh, 2000, um, uh, where, where it was uh, – um, it just seemed like a lot of things in my life, um, the things I was seeing were, um, were having that theme. Um, there was a lot of friends of mine going through stuff. There was a lot of things, I think, just in America that I saw as, as just sort of being unusual. And I, uh, you know, I, I hope I started the book, you know, there's, there's a great, um, Baudelaire, Charles Baudelaire quote that I put in there that, that you know, uh, says, I will vent my anger in terrifying books. I want to turn the whole human race against me. And, um, you know, I felt at that time, um, I don't know if anger is the word. It was more just sort of obviously depression, but um, I felt sad for my fellow human being. And um, I, you know, the, 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 the first poem in the book, which is called the first poem, you know, starts out with, I belong to the lost generation. And, Again, sort of what you're saying about Seattle, when your experience in Seattle during the um, during the riots and stuff, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I think you were conveying that you were hoping, in some ways, you were hoping something would happen, and probably in a lot of ways, you were hoping nothing would happen because, you know, not knowing what what would happen is uh, the future. Um, and I sort of see our, our our current society like that. I see us, um, yeah, you know. And I'm I'm just as guilty as anybody. I mean, um, I I see so much going on in the world that we could be doing, and then most people are just 
probably the point where they have to get up, you know, get to work, get home, get the kids or whatever, or go out and have some drinks, you know, get on Google, um, you know, watch TV. Um, you know, as a writer, it just sort of, it just sort of, I, I felt like we were kind of boring and like there was no, we weren't living in the times like the sixties or the seventies where there was, um, it seemed like a lot of action. Um, today there seems like there's a lot of reaction, but it's a lame reaction. It's a man, we're getting screwed by the government. All right. I got to go get off some emails, you know? Um, and, and so I think the book, you know, um, I didn't really have any answers. It was just a whole bunch of, it was a whole bunch of little just, uh, stories, little segments. And my answer was sort of, you know, I think the only way to maybe possibly solve the crises that I see is to basically raise the place and uh, start over. Um, because I think we're in a, I think we're, I think in a lot of ways we're, we're living in a, in a, in a good, in a good time. And in a lot of ways we're living in a very, very scary bad time. Um, obviously we have a lot of great technologies. Um, we have a lot of great, you know, advances medically, scientifically. Um, you know, we have better cars, we have better houses. I mean, there's no doubt about that. The standard of living today in one way is, is excellent. In another way, it is just abhorring. Um, and so I think in the book, I tried to deal with that as best as I could. And, and my, my reaction was mostly that it, it, it's got to change and, and what it is, I, I don't know if I really know, but um, the death suicide thing, I think um, suicide um, has plagued me for whatever reason. It has followed me both personally and uh, through friends and, um, and in a lot of my heroes. Um, I don't, a lot of people I think get the wrong idea about me. I think they think I'm drawn towards people that are really messed up or, you know, um, but, but that's not the case at all. You know, I, I, I'm the kind of guy that I was like, you know, if I like a band, I always like the album that nobody else likes, you know? <laughs> um, and, and it's not because I'm trying to be different or pick it. It's just the way, it's just the way it falls. And, um, all, a lot of my heroes were just tortured, tortured people. You know, I love, and, and, and of course I, I just seem to be drawn to it. I, I read a ton of biographies very fascinated by the way uh, people live their lives and, and how they die and sort of the torture. And, and, and I usually, I have kind of a knack of picking really messed up people, you know, whether it be Guy Debord or Jackson Pollock or Biter Meinhof or, I mean, um, I, I guess subconsciously I like the no way out, you know. Um, I think, you know, you've probably seen the Butch Cassidy Sundance movie uh, with Paul Newman and all that, and that, that last scene where, you know, they 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 rush out and the 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 film just freezes, but you hear the gunshots, yeah, and you hear the gunshots for like two minutes, and you're just looking at this frozen frame. I mean, I think that is like the most beautiful thing I think I've ever seen. It's like it is so it is so perfect of our world. It's just you know, um, it just seems it feels like that sometimes. It feels like all the guns are turned against you, and there's nothing you can do but run out into a hail of gunfire and. Uh, a lot of times it feels like no matter what you you do, you're going to lose. Um, when you look at the current times, I mean, if you turn on the radio, you know, we're, um, there, there's, a, there's a lot of information out there. It's hard to, to find out what's correct, what's not. Um, everybody's an armchair quarterback now. Um, everybody's got a blog, a Twitter. A, I mean, a, anybody can weigh in. Anybody can skew the facts. Anybody can jump on Wikipedia. 
and add or subtract. Um, it's it, it's interesting, you know. Yeah. Um, it's real interesting, and it's it's also real scary because it's it's hard to know um, what's really going on, and it's hard to figure out what you should do about it because we don't live in a time like like uh, for instance, Spider Meinhof lived in. We don't. Um, we can't uh, very easily pick up, you know, even if you wanted to pick up a cause and do something in, in that vein, I don't think you'd get very far, uh, not with technology. Yeah. Um, I think you'd be caught within the first probably 30 seconds. You know? <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's kind of my take on it, too. It's just infinitely harder to approach it the way they did it. But So tell me a little bit about what the music scene's like in Tulsa. Is, a rich history. It's, it's not... Um, Tulsa, is it Tulsa uh, from? Isn't that where Roy Clark came from? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot, lot of Clark. Oh yeah. A lot of fame. We have you know we have the Canes Ballroom, which of course is uh, we've played many times, which is a, a famous venue most mostly because the Sex Pistols did one of their only shows in America there. Wow. Um, Malcolm McLaren thought it'd be a good idea, I guess, to drag the Sex Pistols through the Bible Belt. Yeah, I've seen just, that. Just, I just irritate everybody. One of the was it. The, the rock and roll swindle or one of those documentaries yeah. they document yeah. that and it just looked <laughs> they like taking their life in their own hands. Yeah. That yeah, must well, have been, the, must have been the greatest show ever. That's I yeah, that's a normal day for the betrayal, I think. <laughs> uh, it's you know, the scene's interesting. I mean it's it's uh I don't particularly like to down on things, you know what I mean? I don't I don't think it's healthy to sit back and say, uh but it, but it's certainly not it's certainly not a vibe, a vibrant scene. I mean, it's um, we've probably got the same problem as every other city. You know, there's very few clubs that let original music happen. Yeah. Um, and I think the general opinion of the of the public or the music going public in Tulsa is is probably like most. It's, there's a lot of indifference. You know, I mean, we we have drawn okay at some shows. We've also played at some pretty empty halls, um, but we're also kind of selling something different, though. You know, I'm sure after you've uh, did you, you got, did you get a chance to listen to the reprisals as a whole CD? I listened to most um, of it. Yeah. And so I mean, you know, it's not like your, you know, it's not like your average. You know, we get a lot of people. You know, like, hey, you sound like the Clash and all that kind of stuff. And you know, that's a huge comment. I'm a huge, I'm a huge Clash fan. Of course, we don't set out to really sound like anybody. Yeah. But um, uh, what we're particularly doing um, uh. You know, I mean, I mean, how many people are going to go out in Tulsa and see the portrayal and like hear Stamheim and like get it? I, I don't think too many. You know, yeah. <laughs> so um, the music scenes, it's it's good, but it's you know, the, it, it needs a lot of work. Like probably all music scenes, I mean, music's just a tough business, and uh, you know, it's getting tougher. And I think even the even the major artists are would agree with me. I mean, everybody's kind of watching a change. I mean. Uh, when I first, I'm, I'm only 37, and when I first started making records, there was still we still made, you know we even made them on real tape, so um, there was no you didn't uh, God to get a cassette out was a huge feat, and now you can uh, you know I think I sent you a track via the email you know I know so. and I and I, I got a via email <laughs> on my iPod and I hit play right. and there I was listening to it on yeah. my iPod it was kind of or my iPhone I'm sorry it was kind of uh, amazing because as you say a long time ago it would be some kind of weird production with cassette tapes and it would sound horrible and yeah it's kind of an amazing time and kind of must be a horrifying time to be a musician because of the way the music industry works there doesn't seem to be any money in actually selling records anymore 
No, and it's great. You know, it's great that I could. You know, if you you know you wanted you wanted to hear the track, so I got it right off to you, and you could hear it. By the same token, it sort of has made music um, disposable, and you can get it so quick that you know you you get it. You don't really appreciate the journey. Um, sort of my fear for books. Um, I'm 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 not so sure. I'm really down with uh, the Kindle and that kind of stuff. Um, I think it's great technology, and I think it's really cool. You can do it. Don't get me wrong. But um, if they ever made the the, the paperback or the hardback obsolete, um, I'm not going to be a real happy guy because I I need to hold the book. I need to. I mean, that's part of the experience, you know. Um, is 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 getting in touch with the the text and the pages and the ink and I mean it, that's just for me that's part of the process and to just be able to say oh I want this book right now download it it's paid for on my credit card flip through it on a on, on a screen and uh, you know oh I can't oh I can't read anymore of the book my battery's dead <laughs> I mean you know I hear you but just, I think I it's think very that's... absurd. I, I believe it's the direction. Like I look at my own personal thing. I, I like was really into movies for the longest time, and I staring right now at my collection of about like twelve hundred DVDs, which is kind of insane. But I haven't oh purchased God. one in um, like two or three years because basically once Netflix on not Netflix but that Netflix on demand service came into being where you can just mm-hmm. sort of call up and play whatever movie you want through your Xbox. Suddenly I didn't see a need to own as many DVDs and I'm sort of I've and I have an iPhone and I have the Kindle software and I've made a couple purchases and I agree with you I like looking at my books like I'm looking at all of them going damn look at all those books I read and there's the right. complete Robert Caro collection on uh, Lyndon Johnson and here's a bunch of Cy Hirsch books and 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 but I confess I also liked reading a couple and having them on my little Kindle where I wasn't lugging around books and I can only imagine that it's a choice people 20 years now, it's not even going to occur to them. It's just they're only going to get it one way and that will be a sad way indeed. And I think also you're right, it just encourages like cheaper disposability and artists are not going to really have as much of an impetus to become artists because there won't be any financial incentive anymore because we've made it so cheap and so easily transferable. That'd be my yeah. Way. And we the portrayal went out of our way to, to actually record the record, um, sort of old school, and not not um, not because we wanted to make a massive statement. It was just more um, it, we we wanted to sort of there's just a certain way tape breeze. Um, well I, well, I say tape, but we didn't use real tape. But I mean, there's just sort of there's sort of a way that that going about it. We didn't want that sort of that clean digital, um, you know. We wanted some mistake in there um, because you know we are a flawed human being. Um, we are for a flawed band, no doubt about it. Um, and 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 of course, I'm not anti-technology. I have an iPhone. You know, I love. I'm an Apple man all the way. I love it. And and. Everybody that knows me knows that, and I'd sort of be lost without my iPhone because I can get a lot of work done that way. Yeah. Um, but you know, like again, like uh, like uh, sort of you know, it's kind of the theme of our conversation. You know, whether we get back, you know, getting back to like bottom line office is there's just there's good and bad, and to you know, I have a lot of people that that have not quite got with the times yet as far as like iPhones or what, but they're not going to have a choice, you know. 
uh, five years from now or maybe even sooner, there's not going to be any flip phones. They're all going to look like iPhones. Um, they're all going to be touchscreen type stuff. Um, and then I'm sure they'll come out with something else. And um, we'll just keep progressing that way, I guess, until until they burn this place down and flames in the ashes. You know? Well, I think that's a good way to um, wrap it up. So your um, if people want to learn more about you, they can visit you at thepetrayal.com, correct? Yes, yes, and then, and from there, we people can pick up a copy of your um, CD for ten bucks. And there's also, um, if you go to Amazon.com, you can find Christopher Christopher Cooley's book um, available through Amazon. I guess if you type in Christopher Cooley, you'll find it. That is so, correct. So cool. Well, I appreciate you spending some time with me, and it was a really fascinating conversation. I look forward to. Um, learning more about the betrayal. Maybe you'll be inspired after reading another 10,000 words to write another song about Bottermine Off. Well, yeah, uh, we really appreciate it. And, um, you know, good luck on your book. I can't wait to read it. Um, I've, I've been actually watching your site for a long time now, hoping that, well, that it's, comes it's, out. It's, it's going to take forever, only because my original deal with my agent basically fell through when the book market imploded so yeah. I, um, so because of that I wasn't able to get I mean the only way I was going to finish it at the time was if they were to give me a big advance I could go to Germany right. and other stuff and since then now mostly it ends up being a hobby while I keep doing websites and other work so it's taking forever but that said it's led me to approach it differently which is this kind of um, long form X you know uh, long form way to really approach very specific events in that history with a lot in a lot more depth. So for instance, in the past couple of months, I've been talking to a lot of people who are witnesses say to the 1972 bombing of the Frankfurt, um, uh, us army base at the, at the Ige Farben building in Frankfurt. And it's like amazing. This is, this is depth that I wouldn't have got into otherwise. So I'm thinking about, um, you know, like that alone, that's like a big chapter. So I'm thinking about in the next couple of weeks coalescing that into the chapter and just putting it online. So if it ever ends up in an actual published book, great. If not, it's really fascinating because pretty much everything we know about this little piece of history turns out to be wrong. Um, so there's a lot of things like that. It's allowing me to get a lot more depth. Um, the downside is, is at this rate, the book will be out in the 23rd century. So, right, right. Well, you know, I mean, your podcast is great, and 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 the work you've done is great. And I think, I, I, you know, I think your audience really appreciates the fact that you've made a platform for people to talk about things that I think otherwise a lot of people are kind of scared to talk about because you know nobody wants to be seen as a sympathizer. But I don't think you know. But I think people do also understand that you know this is a very real thing that happened, does happen, is happening. And it's important to, why to they study and understand it. Yeah, yeah and, and to talk about it, I think it's good. And I think that people should talk more about sort of, you know, and, and I think that's sort of the betrayal slant is to, to write songs that, you know, you know, I don't think you necessarily have to answer the question. Um, I think just talking about sort of working through the whole process you know, maybe then we'll get an answer, but I, I don't know. I don't know if it's really about getting an answer. I think it's yeah. more just about kind of uh, directing the thoughts of like, you know, what happened, why, why did it have to happen, and uh, and and what are these people really made of, and why do they do the things they do? And yeah. uh, that's kind of know, my take. Have you seen the movie Stockholm '75? You heard about that? 
I've heard it. I haven't, I haven't seen it now. I um I, I managed to secure like a copy of it. I'll send you a link to it. I have it on my mobile media account, so I'll send you a link oh, cool. to it. You Thanks. can download it because it's fantastic. The ring and I, the reason I bring it up is because um I'm going to be interviewing the director of it in a couple of weeks for my podcast. So it'll be something you might be interested. In. But it's a it's basically a um it's a it's a story about the 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 RAF takeover of the Stockholm Embassy in 1975 and what a mess oh, cool. it was, and it's it yeah. all features this interview with the, one of the participants um, named uh, uh, Del, Klaus Delvo, and he um, and and it's both leading up to this embassy takeover, and then what his life has been like since then, what it was in prison. It's honestly fascinating. If you're into the Bader Meinhof group, it's like catnip. It's kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> It's like an hour long. But anyway, I'll send you the link. You'll probably find it interesting. And then then listen in a couple of weeks. You'll hear that on the podcast, too. So anyway, oh, thanks so much wait, for right. your time. I really appreciate it. It was a really fascinating conversation. If I ever make it to Oklahoma, I look you up. You're, you're actually not too far from the area where my whole family grew up, kind of near Coffeeville up there in Kansas. So maybe a couple hours. Oh, away yeah. From you. Yeah, so, yeah. That's not very far at all. Yeah, I've been, uh, yeah, I go through there all the time. One of and, these uh, days, I'm going to be heading down in that area. So if I make it near Tulsa, I'll come look you up. Yeah, and please uh, stay in touch. Um, you know, drop me some emails or give me a call anytime, and um, we'll keep uh, we'll keep supporting you and getting the name out there for you. It's a it's a wonderful thing you're doing, and it's uh, very educational, and you're really good at what you do. So uh, well, keep up the good work, and don't don't ever be discouraged by it. Oh no, I'm not. I, there's nothing that can be discouraged. I just find it more amusing the reactions of other people, but can't discourage me. I've been at it for ten years, and I'm just as interested now as I was ten years ago. So. Yeah, uh, you know the way I figure it. People can't, uh, you know, uh, we like when we take the stage or, or when I start talking about this or bring my books to work or whatever. People just, I mean, they're just like really, and you're just like, yeah, I'm, don't worry about it. You know, it's it's my bag. You know, yeah. what's, what's your <laughs> you know? problem? I know where I'm at. What's your problem? <laughs> yeah, because I find I find once you get to the, the the root end of most other people, they're they're far stranger than I am. You know, exactly. so <laughs> exactly. so I it this is something I just do kind of from afar, you know, and and mostly I try to. I try to, to filter everything and take and just turn it into art and I uh, would never, you know, really take a personal stock into it, but I do find it utterly fascinating. And uh, I know your your scholarship has been uh, much appreciated on my end of things. Cool. So. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks so much. And I look forward to talking to you at some point. Bottom